Morning again, Grace Bible. Have your Bibles. Open those to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Revelation, chapter 3. Our sermon title for the day is The Faithful Few. The Faithful Few. As you begin to look around and notice here in our area, there are churches really on, in lots of places and on lots of corners. And if we're going to be a church that makes an impact, we have to begin to wrestle with, well, what can we really do? And I think that every church in every generation and every situation like ours would come to a situation and they would say, based upon numbers, based upon the, the size of our congregation, we would be forced to ask ourselves, what is it that we can really do to impact our community? Because there are churches that are bigger. There are churches that have... Uh, a variety of ministries that we do not offer, what can we really do? So just for the sake of experiment, I want you to put your fist up like this, like I'm about to lead us in a small revolt. <laughs> and I want you to think, and think of churches that you passed on the way to church this morning, and for every church that you think of, I want you to put a finger up and be careful which finger goes first. So let's just put up a finger for every church that we passed. Okay, great. Great. Now, I want you to think of the alternative route that Lake Jackson has provided us because if we are anything, we are a city with alternative routes. What churches did you miss? Now, put fingers up for those. Now, keep those hands up if those churches are what we would consider uh, Christian churches. So when we look at our situation, we are surrounded by churches that in some way, shape, or form share the belief system that we have. So immediately when we look at the church of Philadelphia, we're in a different context than they are. Here's why. If you and I were to travel through space and time to Philadelphia the sixth of the seven churches listed in the book of Revelation, we would find that the church at Philadelphia was unique in that it was in the midst of this massive Jewish community. It's the smallest of all the churches, however, because this church at Philadelphia was made up of, in a community with thousands of Jewish people who were worshipers at the synagogue, who were people of the... Uh, what they would claim to be the Old Testament faith, the church of Philadelphia was made up of between 25 and 40 people, depending upon who you read. So, when we look at this church, we see that it is the one, however, in the midst of the fact that they are very small, they are the one that God says the most positive things about. And as he says these positive things, he sends them... 
to the ends of the earth and you see that the gospel message that is portrayed in the, in the story of the church at Philadelphia, they are a window to the, the gospel being spread. So when we talk about the word gospel, we have pointed out in the last few weeks that's not necessarily a church word. It's a word that the church has used and has adapted for the sake of us moving forward. Initially, the word gospel was used to share the message of Rome. And you had Caesar, and you would share the good news of Caesar Augustus. Spread to the ends of the world, to the edges of the earth. And Jesus takes this word, redeems the word, and begins to use it to talk about what it means for us to be people of faith who move out into our world. And we can see that when you look at the church at Philadelphia, they had much less resource than we have... Yet God used them for important things. Uh, let, let's pick up in verse, chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Again, we see in this, this is the introduction we've had every week. Verse 7 provides for us that. The angel of the church in Philadelphia write this. The words of the true one. Who has the key of David. Who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one will open. If we were to look at the story of Philadelphia, as I've said, it's the smallest church. It was renamed at one point Caesar's New City. It was a military town, and it, was, and it was, had a terrain that protected it from any oncoming armies. It was economically stable. The land was fertile. So when you and I, when we are traveling through time, get to Philadelphia, we find what seems to be a good place. Yet you have this small church in the midst of it. And there seems to be, as with Smyrna, a, a sense of persecution. They are being mistreated because of their faith in Jesus. And when Jesus introduces himself to them, unlike any of the other churches, Jesus comes out with a, an introduction that is unique. The rest of them are based in Revelation chapter 1. Philadelphia's introduction is based in Jesus speaking to them specifically as the one who is holy, the one who is true, the one who has the key of David. So we have to break that down and begin to examine what does it mean that he is the holy one, that he is the true one. The word holy in the scriptures means to be set apart, distinct, unique. Jesus is the unique one. Jesus is the genuine one. So, I'm on Facebook because uh, I live in 2017. And I'm thinking about traveling to 1954 where there was no Facebook. Because I watched the way people act on there. But what you do find when you look at Facebook is, from time to time now, there is a, the idea of someone stealing another person's Facebook identity. As a matter of fact, I noticed this on one of our members' page yesterday. They posted and said, if you receive a friend request from me, no, it is not me. Did anyone ever have that happen to them? It's terrible. So, someone takes your picture, because you can save any picture, 
And they begin to reinvite your friend list. This happened to me a couple of years ago. And I had been reinvited to be someone's friend. And they then messaged me, this person who I had not spoken to in four years. And this person asked me to send them money because they were in Libya and they needed to escape. And I have this personality interacting with me. And I'm thinking, how will I get money to Libya? How will I ever make sure this person is rescued from Libya? And I'm reading through this. When Jesus is speaking to this church, he is noticing that if you are in Philadelphia, you are being bombarded with various other gods who claim to be genuine. And his introduction to the church is one where he says, I'm the real deal. I'm, I'm the genuine article. There's nothing that lines up against me. There's nothing that compares to me. I am who I say that I am. I am the one who is above all things. This is the Jesus as genuine. We also see these elements of Jesus as we consider him to be the genuine article. Because he is exactly who he says he is. He has proven himself to be faithful. I don't think we have to go very far in this room to talk about Jesus' faithfulness. I look around right now and I see stories of God's faithfulness to us as a people. Stories of God's faithfulness in the midst of storms. Stories of God's faithfulness in the midst of sickness. Stories of God's faithfulness in the, in the midst of everything that has been the last few months. Stories of God's faithfulness as we walk through the death of loved ones. Expected and unexpected. That God is faithful... He demonstrates his faithfulness in lots of ways. One of those is through creation. God made us. So, so how is he faithful to us as objects of his creation? Well, think about this. The sun rises and the sun sets every day. Here in Lake Jackson, it is approximately 74 degrees hotter than the rest of the world. But it rises and it sets the grass turns green no matter how bad the weather is. It's going to happen. Our lungs are enabled to breathe in oxygen thousands of times every day. Your heart in a year will beat 35 million times. We have food. We are provided a place to sleep. We get up. God is faithful. We see him as faithful in the genuine sense as the real God who made us and set this world into motion. But Jesus goes beyond that with some of the rest of the language he uses in his introduction of himself. Not only is he faithful in the general sense, Jesus is faithful to those of us who are part of the church in the particular sense. In a unique way. He has the key of David. Who opens, and, and some translations read, the door and no one can shut it. And who shuts the door and no one opens. So I, I don't know if you've got that key on your keychain. I was looking through mine this morning. There is one key that goes to the church. And then there's a key that goes to my house. And then there's a key that goes to my car. It's a valet key because I, my other key broke. And they cost like a million dollars to replace. There are lots of keys on this chain. But there's one key... That I don't know what it belongs to. But I'm not going to get rid of it. Because the moment that I get rid of it, I'm going to need it. If you've got that key, could you just let me know that you're with me? you got that key. You're not letting... You're holding on. Holding on strong because one day you will need that key. Jesus here speaks uniquely unto himself about who he is. 
the one who has the key of David. This is pointing out the lineage of Jesus from the very beginning, the one who is the promised redeemer of Israel, provided for the people, God's son, through David's family. This is Jesus. He's the righteous one. He opens the door and no one will shut. That's very strange language. But he's saying this to a church that has doors shut in their face all of the time. Because that synagogue in Philadelphia was a place where they would ostracize those who believed in Jesus as a continuation of the Old Testament faith. You weren't allowed there. You were shut out. So Jesus is pointing out how he is the one and only he who makes it possible for us to have right relationship with God. Well, how did Jesus make it possible for me and for you to have a right relationship with God? This is the story of Christianity, that God came down because of our sin. That Jesus took death upon himself that was not his. He carried that death so that we could walk freely. Jesus became weak though he was strong. So that we could be strong though we were weak. One poet wrote after World War I in reference to our God, the, the God of faithful believers. The other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you stumbled to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And no God has wounds, but you alone. Jesus taking our punishment upon himself so that we could walk freely. I always illustrate it this way. We have four children. And when we pick them up from church, inevitably they're going to begin to hand me things. Right? Anyone who's ever had a child, they, that's, that's what they do. They just want you to carry their things. I don't know why we've not moved to some type of digital collection that you send me at the end of services yet. So I'll show up to pick up Shepherd because that's who you pick up first, the oldest child, because they can help with the rest of them. And Shepherd's not asking me how fantastic my sermon was, how wonderful was the music. Shepherd just says to me, Daddy, here's my stuff. So I've just got stuff. Uh, carrying this stuff. I go to pick up Charlie and Charlie says, Daddy, because Charlie talks like a dragon. Here's my stuff. I've got two kids' stuff. Neither one of them have their stuff. Why aren't they carrying their stuff? Maybe I'm a bad parent. But I'm carrying their stuff. I then go pick up Noli, and thankfully we're beyond the season where whoever her teacher was would hand me a plastic bag as she trained through life full of a, a tutu that is definitely not my stuff. Uh, and I'm walking through the building, and I've got Shepherd's stuff and Charlie's stuff and Noli's stuff. I go pick up Alder, and Alder for the longest time had this bag that he was placed in rooms with that could fit every one of us inside of it. And the teacher would say, here's all their stuff. And I'm walking down the hall carrying everyone's stuff. None of the stuff is mine. So they could walk hands free. 
The message of Jesus is this. Because we are weak. And unable to accomplish righteousness on our own. Jesus takes our stuff. It's just a lot worse than the things that my kids carry. He takes our sin upon himself. He takes our wickedness upon himself. He, he dies in our place. Becoming like us. Even though he did not know sin. He became sin. So that we could walk away freely as the righteousness of God. That's the message that we are introduced to the church of Philadelphia. That's the message of the gospel. Jesus carries sin so we, we don't have to. Because at the end of the day you can't. Jesus says this. Verse 8. I know your works. So he's making a statement to this church. Behold. Now... There's a comma there, and we've got a word, which is a pause word. But we may not fully get what Jesus is getting at. When you see the word behold in this passage, more often than not, if you see a word like this, you skim it. But Jesus is saying, take a breath. Stop. Vanilla Ice would put it this way. Stop. Collaborate. And listen. I have set before you an open door. The entire message that the church at Philadelphia receives from everyone around them is that every door is closed. And Jesus says, as the Lord of all, the door's not shut. I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. Again, our translations are helpful, but in the original language, it actually reads this. I have set before you an open door that no one can shut because you have little power. So Jesus, taking the theme of the weakness of the church at Philadelphia deeper, says, I've opened the door because you can't. I spent a lot of my life doing student ministry. And I, I love teenagers. I like them more than love them at this point in my life. But they're still okay. I like to be around students. It's fun. But when you have been around students for a long time, you begin to notice certain rhythms in student ministry. And one of those rhythms is this. A youth pastor will scan the room. And he will begin to zone in on certain students that he believes that are going to be capable leaders. And they begin to push the capability of that student as a leader based in them. Nothing outside of them, everything because of them. So here's what happens. You have the student who is the athlete. And he's a good kid, seems to be a good kid. And the youth pastor inadvertently will begin to say to him, we need you to accomplish what God needs. We need you. I've done it myself. Or the popular young lady. We, we need you. And we begin to put the onus of the faith of this student ministry and their belief in Jesus moving forward in the capability of these students. 
The problem with that is the majority of the Bible slaps it in the face. Because when we see God choosing leaders in Scripture, He does not go to the strongest. He goes to the weak. There's a story in the Old Testament about a a little boy named David. You've probably heard of him. And when you read the story of David, here's what we find. That when Samuel was going to pick out a king, he went to Jesse. And Jesse got all of the boys out. He got Bo and Luke and Coy and Vance and three more. And surely one of these seven is going to be the leader. Surely one of these seven is going to be the new king of Israel. And every time Samuel would walk up to one, he would see the stature of this young man. And he would say, this has to be the king. And God would say, what? This is the interactive part of our program. God would say, what? No. Boy number two. No. Three. No. Four. No. Five. No. They even got to Daisy. No. None of them are the king. Do you have anybody left? We've got David. But I don't think he's the one you want. And the king of Israel, the new king, was protecting the sheep of his father. I don't know who's told you you're not good enough. But at some point it's happened. And our ability to do God things has nothing to do with us but, and has everything to do with the God in whom we believe. So for every one of us who have staked our ability to accomplish God things on our own abilities, I want you to stop. Because God can do whatever he pleases. And over and over in scripture we, choo- we see him choose to use the weak. And those who felt the most inadequate. I know your works. Behold. Stop. I have set before you an open door. Which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Stop. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, they are but a lie. So when you get to a phrase like synagogue of Satan as a pastor, you need to spend a little time there. Smyrna, where we reference the synagogue of Satan. What does this mean? In the original language, the name Satan, the accuser, the adversary, the one who is against the church. And I begin to think about, yes, we, we look through the scriptures and we definitely see this, this, this Satan present. But we also see that there are sometimes those who operate subconsciously as advocates of him. Adversaries of the church. Because the church is full, uh, is... The history of the church is littered with those who would be against us, even if it's subconscious. It's the idea of rivals. Like, we know as the church, definitely Satan is against us. 
But honestly, anything that's functioning in a way that would be against this message of Jesus that's being communicated for the church at Philadelphia, that's an adversary. So we're sports fans. I know that because that's all you talk to me about since my team's terrible. Every Sunday, there are a couple of you that come up and say, so you guys were really bad yesterday. And I say, yes, we prayed about it a lot. Uh, More than I should. So... We know that the University of Texas, their number one rival is whom? A&M. A&M. But you've also got Oklahoma. And that Baker Mayfield kid. But in order for Texas to win the national championship, this is a hypothetical. <laughs> they don't just have these primary adversaries. They're going to have to see Clemson defeated. But you'd never call them an adversary, but they're definitely against you. They're going to need to see Michigan, Ohio State. When we look at the idea of the adversary and who functions on his behalf, Anything that is against the message of Jesus advancing is that. Good things, bad things, things that we think are okay, neutral. Anything that would cause us to not function in a way where Jesus is held at the highest is operating on behalf of the adversary. The great accuser, the great Satan that we see here. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but a lie. I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. And Jesus is pointing out, you have the Old Testament idea of of the chosen nation of Israel. And how the God's people were, were chosen by him. Yet, And that's who the synagogue would claim to worship. But because they had stopped at Jesus. And they said no. They were no longer functioning in a way that fulfilled that. So when Jesus points out that he's going to have them bow down. It reminds us of the story in the book of Genesis. Where we have a young man named Joseph. Coat of many colors. He is hated by his brothers because he had that sweet coat. He's thrown into a pit, eventually sold into slavery. They think that he's dead. They bring the coat back. It's covered in, it's in shreds. The father thinks that he's dead. You then get to Genesis chapter 42 where God has taken this young man who has been mistreated and he has allowed him over time to rise to this prominent place. And the brothers don't know that it's him. Yet when they get there, they bow down before him. It's a story that we see in the Old Testament. And it's being retold by Jesus here. As he says, those who were against you, they're going to bow down before you. We can't get headstrong about that. They're bowing down before us because of Jesus. Because honestly, when they bow down, they're bowing down to Jesus. Verse 10, you've kept my word about, my, about patient endurance. 
And I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. The only one of the seven churches that deals with anything that we have historically associated with Revelation, with dragons and inappropriate women and Kirk Cameron, is Philadelphia. And when you read to the story of Philadelphia, you get to this concept of what will God do with believers in this period called the tribulation? And you read this phrase, I will keep you from, and you can see that one of two ways. And more often than not, when believers read a passage like this, we get caught up in the preposition. Is he going to keep us through it? Or is he going to keep us from it? Will we be raptured? Or will we be here seeing bad things happen all around us? Let me be honest with you. As someone with multiple degrees, I feel like I should be able to give you a good answer. I don't know. I know where I lean. But I do know the emphasis of this text is not in the preposition, it's in the verb. So regardless if Jesus keeps us from tribulation or keeps us in tribulation, our hope is that Jesus will keep us. I will keep you from the hour of trial or I will hold you in the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell against the church. Jesus says, I am coming soon. And again, we've got this loaded phrase from 2,000 years ago. But all of Scripture shows us this idea that our idea of time is not like God's idea of time. Hold fast what you have so that no one can seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will give him a pillar in the temple of my God. Hold fast. Uh, That's been another recurring theme through these books, through these churches, that we are to hold fast. And Jared and I, every Sunday after worship, not not on Sunday, but on Monday or or Tuesday, we sit down and we look through the service and... um, you know, I tell him the high notes that he hit that I probably couldn't have hit, and we just discuss worship as a whole. And a few weeks ago, I, we're thinking through the sermon, and we begin to think about what it means to apply this. Did we communicate how we as a church apply the ideas that were taught today? How are we going to choose to be obedient to this text? Because at the end of the day, application is not a Bible word. Obedience is. We don't apply things. We, we obey what God teaches us. So when we read through this idea of, of us holding fast, we have to ask ourselves questions. And those questions have to line up with, well, what have we done so that we are setting our people up to hold fast to these truths? What are the things that we can push so that we are people who hold fast to God's word? Now, there are some really obvious things there. One of the ways that we as believers can hold fast to the teaching of Scripture is through the idea of of being here. 
We hold fast because we don't forsake the gathering together of the assembly. We believe that God has called us to worship together with our church family. There are other ways that we can hold fast. The reason that I would take a few moments from our welcome time earlier to tell you the, impo- the importance of being plugged into the faith family through a life group it's not because we want you to take a weird hour out of your week because let's just be real life groups are weird because people are weird and if you don't think you're weird it's weird that you think that but we need to be leaning into these things not for life group's sake but for accountability's sake we need to be having conversations about the Bible. Not for the per- point of the Bible, but because the Bible and talking about it helps us to know Jesus better. Hold fast. What are other ways that we hold fast? We begin to take our treasures and things that matter to us, whether that be time or our talent or, or our finances. And we realize that if I'm clinging to these things, there's a really good chance I'm not clinging to the Jesus who gave me these things. It's us making sacrificial decisions because in every sacrificial decision that we make as believers, we are saying that the great sacrifice of Jesus has shaped that. Hold fast. Letting go of things of this world. Clinging to eternal things. It's more than that. It's us realizing that we do need to spend time in the Bible. But not so that we can check off that we read the Bible. We read through scriptures. Because that's us reflecting on how God has chosen to communicate to us. Scripture is God emphatically exclaiming what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. Exclamation point after exclamation point. Hold fast. Hold fast with what you have. So that no one may seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. It's been a weird year for natural disasters. Um, We walked through Harvey. If you were in Florida, you walked through hurricanes. And Puerto Rico dealt with hurricanes. We've seen these. There was also this awkward... I don't even remember when it was. There was an earthquake in Texas. Does anybody remember that in the news? I never... And it shook things. And earthquakes are not common for us except in very specific parts of the country. But in Philadelphia, they've gone through two earthquakes. And the idea of found the idea of the building holding steady, one it was tied to the foundation, but two it was tied to the pillars. The the pillars were extensions of the foundation. The pillars could not exist without the foundation. But the foundation could exist without the pillars. But you see this idea of the pillar here that Jesus points to because the church knows it. They, they are familiar with it. 
And when he makes this point, what he is saying is to all of these people who cling and hold fast, to all these people who lean in and hold on, to all these believers, they are going to be extensions of what God is doing. Here are some words that Jesus uses as he moves forward. He begins to talk about giving them a new name. Never shall you go without it, and I will go with me. Verse 12 again. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go without it, and I will write on him the name of my God. So God's name is written on us. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. Jesus here clearly says three ways I'm going to make the statement that you are mine. 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love to read through texts of churches that struggle and, and stories of churches that are having a difficult time. Because as you read through these, you see God's faithfulness. Because he's faithful first. We can't be faithful if not responding to his faithfulness. But you see how God has been faithful and people have clung to him because of said faithfulness. And you see the idea is present that believers in Jesus are going to cling to him because ultimately he's all that they have to cling to. And they're going to use everything in their ability to make sure that they're holding on tight. To make sure that they're not... To make sure that they are setting themselves up to be what God has called them to be in their world. Are we as a faith family going to take hold of everything that God has provided for us so that we can be people of faith who are operating optimally in ours? Look, this isn't about you being perfect because if it was, we don't need to be here because none of us are. But it's about us clinging to the one who is. D.A. Carson, one of my favorite theologians, and he's also from Canada, so that's cool. He says this, The New Testament does not offer a lot of encouragement for people who want just enough Christianity to be saved. Let me unpack that. If our whole understanding of the faith is that we will not go to hell when we die, then we have missed the message of Jesus. Because Jesus has told every church that we've looked at in some way, shape, or form, when the struggles come, hold on. When the difficulties come, hold on. When the earthquake comes, hold on. Because I'm the only one that is going to be a foundation for you. So take advantage of what God gives us. To be people who have a foundation that is unshakable in a world that shakes regularly. Should you bow your heads with me? Even now, I would think that there's some here 
who've never placed their faith in Jesus. And you may have questions about that. I'd love to be able to set up conversations with you. So that card you had earlier, or maybe you can grab another one, there were plenty out today. I would love for you just to write down your name and a way for me to get in touch with you and just say, hey, I would love for someone to follow up with me about a relationship with Jesus. One of our, one of our pastoral staff or one of our elders or one of our deacons, really good men. We'd love to follow up with you. We'd love to be able to have a conversation with you about what it means for you to trust Jesus so you can begin holding fast. We do that by confessing that we're sinners and asking Jesus to save us. But we want to, we want to be able to sit down and walk through that with you thoroughly. Secondly, you're here and I'm grateful for you. And I look around this room and i got lots of servants in this, in this space right now. Thank you for the way you serve our church. But if you're here and, and you're, yes, you're part of this faith family, but you've, you're looking and you're like, I, I'm not clinging to anything. Please take some of the practical steps practical things that Grace Bible provides. Our women's Bible study, our, our life groups, the church-wide devotion that we provide. And use these as tools to get a better grip. Lord Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you that your word is thick we thank you for text that we don't always understand but we thank you for the God who does so Jesus I do pray that as we consider what it means to be people who see you as the foundation I pray that we'll see the beauty of being pillars that are attached to you. Needy of you, but extensions of you. Teach us to cling. We ask all this in your name. I'm over here to, you, to your right hand side if you need me.